what is going to come after populism. What happens when populist voters don't get what they want? What happens when Donald Trump does not revive the uh, Rust Belt in Ohio and Pennsylvania? What happens when the Freedom Party voters don't get dramatic reductions in immigration? Probably the worst trade deal ever agreed ja, to. The arbeitslosen Zeit seit dem Zweiten Weltkrieg. Breaking news here, stocks all around the world are tanking because of the crisis on Wall Street. Hallo Leute, ich bin Andreas Sato und ihr hört meinen Podcast Nachfrage. In ihm gibt es alle meine Interviews, die ich für den Standard mache, ungeschnitten und in voller Länge. Dieses Mal ist Matthew Goodwin zu Gast, ein britischer Politikwissenschaftler. Und der hat schon zu Rechtspopulismus, zu Moslemfeindlichkeit, zu nationaler Identität geforscht, bevor es vor ein, zwei Jahren cool geworden ist. Wie immer gibt es am Beginn des Podcasts eine kleine Werbeeinschaltung für alle, die über Soundcloud zuhören. Wenn euch der Podcast gefällt, würde ich mich freuen, wenn ihr ihn abonniert. Das geht ganz einfach am Handy mit einer gratis Podcast-App. Wenn ihr ihn besonders mögt, teilt ihn bitte mit euren Freunden auf Twitter oder Facebook oder schreibt mir einen Review auf iTunes. Das hilft dabei, dass er bekannter wird. Zu Goodwin, der ist 35, also noch ziemlich jung und arbeitet an der University of Kent in England. Dort war er gerade in den Medien, weil er sein Buch, also eine Seite seines Buches, live im Fernsehen gegessen hat. Und zwar hat eine Wette verloren, er hat vor ein paar Monaten auf Twitter geschrieben, wenn der Korb in mehr als 38% bei den Wahlen hat, dann esse ich mein Buch und na, es sind dann über 40 geworden. Ich verfolge seine Arbeit seit circa eineinhalb Jahren, weil er, wie ich finde, eine sehr interessante Erklärung dafür hat, warum die Welt gerade durchzudrehen scheint. Also er geht weg vom Gedanken, dass die Leute vor Populisten stimmen, weil es ihnen schlecht geht, weil sie arm sind, keinen Job haben oder Angst, ihre Arbeit zu verlieren. Also natürlich gibt es diese Leute, aber das ist eine andere Geschichte, sagt Goodwin. Und er hat eine andere Theorie, die sich noch dazu besser mit den Daten deckt. Also nicht nur beim Brexit, auch bei Trump in Österreich, bei Hofer und bei anderen populistischen Bewegungen sind es Leute, die einfach ein anderes Weltbild haben, sagt Goodwin. Immer schon, unabhängig davon, ob es wirtschaftlich gerade gut läuft oder nicht. Diese Leute, denen die nationale Identität wichtig ist, dass wir, die das Wir anders definieren als liberale, weltoffene Menschen, die wollen, dass ihre Welt, so wie sie sie kennen, bestehen bleibt und denen der Wandel der Welt einfach zu schnell geht. Goodwin erklärt das im Interview dann ausführlich. Wir reden auch darüber, wie es weitergehen könnte. Also weder Trump noch der Brexit werden wohl ihr Versprechen halten können, dass die Welt stehen bleibt. Und was machen dann die Leute, die jetzt schon so verärgert sind? Darüber reden wir am Schluss. Ich habe es hochinteressant gefunden. Ich hoffe, ihr könnt euch davon etwas mitnehmen. Viel Spaß beim Hören. Thank you for taking the time, Matthew. You spent a lot of time looking at Brexit and why people voted for Brexit. But what I want to talk about with you are broader aspects about the rise of populism. You did a very big study on why people voted to leave. What do people that voted for leave have in common? So the people who 
ended up voting for Brexit or voting to leave the European Union uh, typically shared many characteristics. They tended to be older, uh, white voters uh, who often had left school at quite an early age. Uh, they tended to feel uh, left behind in terms of their economic position. But primarily, they were anxious about the issue of immigration. Uh, and of course, since 2004, Britain had seen large uh, inflows of migration from within the European Union, as well as large immigration uh, from outside of the European Union. And your average Leave voter uh, felt very anxious about the effects of that immigration, not only on the economy, but also on broader uh, national identity, uh, the community, uh, and ways of life. So it really was a sense of, of economic and cultural uh, angst uh, or anxiety that led people to uh, support Brexit. Do you think there, that one thing is causing the other? Do, does their economic anxiety cause their social or cultural anxiety? Well, when we uh, run the analysis of, of what's driving this vote, it's quite interesting because if you look at, say, differences in income between voters, they really don't stand out as being key drivers of, of the vote for Brexit. But what is clearly important are these very large differences when it comes to uh, levels of education. So among those who don't have any qualifications, the average vote for Brexit was around 75%. Yeah? Uh, so 75% of those without qualifications voted for Brexit. Um, compared to only uh, around 23% of those who had gone to university. So what you see is a very large gap in education, which I think helps us to understand why there are these very sharp differences in broader outlooks among those different groups. Um, so if you voted for Brexit, for example, you are far more likely to also think that um, the economy wasn't going very well, that uh, we should give criminals stiffer sentences, that um, we should reintroduce capital punishment or the death penalty, and that rights for minorities had, had gone too far. But if you voted to stay in the European Union, it wasn't just that you were pro-EU, it was also generally that you were more at ease uh, and relaxed about rapid social change and about the way in which Britain has evolved over the last 20 or 30 years. So really we've seen this very, very sharp um, uh, gulf uh, or ocean uh, that's, that's separating uh, these two worldviews. So the average Brexit voter, if you said, why did you vote Brexit? They'd say immigration. And your average Remain voter, if you say, why did you vote to remain in the European Union? They would typically say to protect Britain's economy. So two parallel uh, conversations, two parallel sets of concerns. On the one side, you have highly educated people that not very often voted to leave. On the other hand, you have less educated people who voted to leave. Do you think that um, they share, in general, different worldviews, that the less educated people are just, they have different moral views on what's good and what's wrong? Or is it the fact that they are anxious about 
am I going to have a job with my with the little education I have? These are not just differences in terms of attitudes towards issues of the day. They're differences in how we see the world around us. We know that across the West in general, there is a very rapidly emerging divide over values. That in essence, there is a conflict between a silent conflict between those who are more liberal, who are more open, who are more relaxed about social change, and those who are more ultra-conservative uh, and who want order and stability and want to push back against what they see as being the excesses of liberalism. And so Brexit is just part of that story. Brexit is an expression uh, of those value differences. As somebody said, on the day after the result, um, you know, are you in London waking up to a country that's voted for Brexit and feeling as though another part of the country has just imposed their values on you? Well, that is how populist voters have felt for the last 30 years, in that what we're seeing is this complete tussle between uh, a, a conflict between different groups with different values. Do you think this is a this is valid also for for the US and for European countries where populism surged in the last years? I think in general terms what we're seeing is a backlash to a particular world or a particular set of values and a mindset that became especially visible from the 1970s onwards. I think my take on this is you really need to go back to the early 1970s to understand where Europe is today. It was in the 1970s that academics first began to point to the rise of what they called post-materialists, groups of voters that had come of age amid the economic boom, the 30 glorious years, that were enjoying a rapid expansion of university education, and that were more progressive in their values. They were less concerned about security. They were less concerned about immigration. They were more uh, affluent, more, uh, and as a consequence, more liberal, more tolerant. What we are now witnessing, and you know, what countries like Austria witnessed in the 80s and the 90s, is a continuing backlash to that process, which is a backlash among materialists, conservatives, uh, groups of voters who value stability and order, uh, against those voters who say, well, we should double down on globalization, we should double down on, on immigration and ethnic change. And there's another section of the electorate that's saying, actually, we don't want that. We don't like it, we don't recognize it, and we don't want that. And so we're seeing a, a sort of counter-revolution to that liberal uh, revolution that started in the 70s. I guess you know Great Britain the best. Mm. If, if you have to divide the country in, in these two groups, the, the group that is uh, post-materialistic, that, that favors globalization, and the group that prefers to have stability, to, to be left alone, we want to um, be able to, to care for our own stuff, if you have to put numbers on that, on the two groups. 50-50? Well, I mean, if you look across Europe more generally, and one of the things that we do in this report with Chatham House is we look at roughly the numbers of people that are liberal and the numbers that are ultra-conservative or authoritarian, right? And they're basically quite even, but they're both very large blocks. I mean, you're talking about, you know, 40-40, you know, that kind of 
figure where you have people that lean instinctively to a more progressive left liberal position uh, and you have another block that instinctively is more conservative and more resistant to to rapid change and uh, you know that we can see that in just the manifestation of party competition in Europe where you're you're seeing those conservative voters really align uh, around uh, movements on the right but even socially conservative workers who used to vote for the left are now defecting and joining populist right parties because of their uh, their backlash to this liberal uh, this liberal uh, wave as they see it so they are uh, really putting their economic uh, uh, concerns secondary uh, to their identity uh, concerns uh, and so you know they're endorsing parties like you know the Freedom Party for example here in Austria um, because uh, chiefly they see those parties as a vehicle through which they can reduce immigration or they can push back against the refugee crisis or they can push back against the mainstream elite. Uh, they're not really mainly turning to parties like that because they want greater redistribution. They're turning to them because they, in, they agree with their value stance. They agree with their, uh, with their position on these issues. Uh, if we look through, through time and the last 20, 30, 40 years, do you think that The, uh, that people in Western countries got more liberal on average, or was it just the elite that got more liberal and this gap um, started to grow? Well, I think a few things happened. I think firstly, um, we, we cannot forget the importance of uh, immigration and ethnic change to where we are today, right? And we don't really, we, we, we talk a lot about this, but we don't really talk about it. And what I mean by that is, It's really only been since the 1970s that Europe has experienced significant immigration from outside, okay, now in, in, a, in a fairly sustained, co coherent, consistent way. Uh, and then in the UK, for example, after the accession of Central and East European countries, countries like the UK and others saw much larger migration as a consequence of free movement. But then 10 years later, the refugee crisis added to that and we saw political instability in the Middle East and Northern Africa really lead to new changes. So, you know, I think these value divides that we talk about have always been there. We've always had people who want to embrace social progress and change and they want to run with that. And we've always had people who say, actually, we should slow down and we should restore hierarchy and order and we should resist this change. The crucial difference now, however, is that the experience of uh, how our societies are changing very quickly has really made people aware of this value divide in a much more real way, that they're looking at the media and the political classes and they're looking at their, uh, their, their other fellow citizens and they're seeing very different reactions to issues on which they hold very clear beliefs. So on the refugee issue, for example, you know, they see Uh, their fellow liberal citizens welcoming this and celebrating this change, or they see Angela Merkel, you know, welcoming this. But among their more conservative counterparts, you know, they're 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 seeing a very different reaction. So we are all becoming highly politicized through these external events, and that that is what's galvanizing a lot of this value this value conflict. And in the 80s and the 90s, you know, it was a lot about. Uh, earlier waves of immigration, but now I think it's fair to say that what you're seeing in Europe 
is a more existential challenge to the nation state and to national communities because of simply the numbers that are involved and, and the fact that we've been struggling collectively to resolve this issue. And the generational point is also important that millennials, younger voters in Europe today, and mainly, I mean, there are exceptions, but younger educated voters are far more liberal than the older social conservatives. Now, there are exceptions in Austria, for example, young Austrian men who haven't gone to university are, tend to be quite supportive of you know, you know, right-wing parties, right? There are exceptions, but if you say you look at the UK, if you're 18 to 35 years of age, you're very liberal, you're pro-EU, you support Jeremy Corbyn and the left-wing Labour Party, um, and so we're seeing a generational effect that is taking place um, in, in, in quite broad terms. And I think that's very interesting. I mean, that, that, that potentially is interesting. It's also worrying because it's setting up a, a generational conflict. But, um, but it's interesting in suggesting that what we're, where we are now is not going to be static, that this situation is going to change probably quite dramatically in the years to come. But if we keep education or age constant, if we compare, for example, a worker in 2017 with a worker in the 80s or uh, um, an average 20-year-old man with a now with a 20-year-old man in the 80s, did people get more liberal? In, in, very, in very broad terms, support for liberal positions like same-sex marriage, um, anti-racism, rights for women, those kinds of issues have received much broader public support. And you can see that reflected in public policy. I mean, most Western states have passed legislation that has enshrined those basic liberal positions. So I think it is fair to say that, in general, the post-materialist wave um, has, has increased, consistent with what people like Ron Ingorhart argued. But they also argued, and this is where I think today is really important, they also argued that that change can slow down and even stop during periods of an economic downturn. So post-2008, when we had the Great Recession and we had the sovereign debt crisis, you know, if you look at the earlier work on value change, one of the key arguments was that people, the post-materialist upsurge can stop as an economic downturn kicks in. But it doesn't go backwards, it just stays. And then it resumes once economic growth is restored and once stability uh, is restored. So you never really go back to where we were in the 20s or the 30s or the 40s because a lot of that change becomes set in stone, right? That's a theory of intergenerational kind of change. So there are some big unknowns right now, which is, you know, once Europe is, re is returned to economic growth in a serious long-term way, will we then see much more dramatic changes in these, these value divides? Um, or will we, will we instead perhaps see a sort of tapering off uh, as conservatives begin to, to mobilize against uh, what's happening. And, you know, I think it's fair to say since 2005, we, we have seen politically the consequences of that because parties on the left generally have struggled across much of Europe, whereas parties on the right generally um, have prospered since uh, 2005 and since the crisis. So all of that is broadly consistent 
with that, that original idea. So do you think that um, if, if we have normal economic times in the next few years, this, is, this whole Trump and Brexit and populism thing is just the last outcry of the conservatives and the liberals are going to win? Well, I think, you know, what, there are two competing schools of thought. You know? One is millennials are more tolerant, more liberal, and will soon replace older generations. And we will move into a far more liberal, internationalist, cosmopolitan world, effectively. This is what I call the economist argument, right? Because the Economist magazine makes this argument every month. The other, the other school of thought is that actually it won't necessarily be a permanent generational change, but we will see the continuation of a life cycle effect where as those millennials get older, they too will become more conservative with age like their parents and their grandparents. Uh, and so Europe will continue to be uh, experiencing this political turmoil or the West will continue to experience this political turmoil, not least as new generations of voters become left behind in their own way. I mean, if you're 18 or 20 in France, Spain and Italy, generally life is not great right now, you know? Um, so, so that's, you know, so, and those two arguments are what I would call the optimistic argument versus the pessimistic argument. And I think, you know, we aren't going to have the answer to that until we, uh, until we actually see this play out in real, in real time. Um, because the one thing that we've, we've, we know is that people are very, very susceptible, uh, very, very uh, heavily influenced by external events. And the issue agenda in Europe, the, you know, the, the, the agenda of European politics is changing rapidly. If you look at, say, surveys, you know, the survey that we've done, some of the top issues in Europe now our immigration and the refugee crisis. This is not an agenda that is the same as it was in the 80s and the 90s when it was about the economy or public services or jobs and unemployment. So we're seeing these identity issues really move up the agenda and that's fueling a lot of this conflict between different groups. So I think to trying to figure out who's going to win this battle is very, very difficult, right? I mean, um, it's, it, it, it also takes us into a sort of final point. It takes us into this debate that we've not had in Europe yet, which is, you know, we talk about post-liberalism, like what's coming after liberalism, you know, that this is the beginning of the end for, for that political project. Uh, but what's post-populism, right? What is going to come after populism? What happens when populist voters don't get what they want? What happens when Donald Trump does not revive the uh, Rust Belt in Ohio and Pennsylvania, what happens when the Freedom Party voters don't get dramatic reductions in immigration or they don't get the resolution of the refugee crisis? Or what happens when Brexit voters don't get an end, complete end to free movement or they don't get a new free trade agreement with the EU that works for them or they get more globalization, which is even worse for them? So, you know, you've got a series of known unknowns um, that we will have to just watch and, and see. I mean, you, you know, you, you can't, only a sort of fool makes predictions of politics now. So you would say that it's also possible that we don't see the last outcry of conservatives or authoritarians, but we could see an even bigger outcry in five years if nothing changes substantially. Well, I think, yeah, I think the, the big macro question is, 
are we at the beginning of a period of volatility in, in Europe and the West? Or are we at the end? Right? So is Trump and Brexit and Le Pen, are these the end? Or are they the beginning? And I think if you just look at, you know, it ultimately depends on, on whether you're an optimist or a pessimist, whether you, you know, in your own political views. But if you just look at how weak our allegiances are to the mainstream parties and how far more strongly influenced we are by issues rather than who our fathers voted for or our grandfathers voted for or who our mothers voted for and our grandmothers voted for, then what we've seen is a breakdown of those traditional allegiances. Now that on its own tells us that politics is going to be more volatile. Um, and so I think, you know, looking forward, I, I, I mean, I'm not, myself, I'm not too pessimistic, but that, you know, none of this is quite clear, I think. None of this will be resolved in the uh, short to medium term. It's a long-term issue for Europe. You know, we have parties now, you know, if you look at Austria, you have parties polling 46, 47% of the vote, that if you told me in the early 2000s they would be polling that level of support, I just would not have believed you. If you told me in 2000 that Le Pen would be in the second round with 35% of the vote, I would have found that shocking. And if you told me that Donald Trump would have been president of the US or the UK would have voted for Brexit, I would have found those largely implausible given where those countries were in the early 2000s. So, you know, um, political change can happen incredibly quickly, less than two decades. And, uh, and we've, seen, we've, seen, we've seen rapid political change. So, you know, who knows what the next two decades uh, have got. But I mean, it's, uh, I, I certainly don't think they've got a quick instant return to stable, mainstream, centrist politics. So what would you recommend to centrist politicians to, to cap migration for the moment, to emphasize, for example, the Austrian identity, like, I mean, the, our, our president did this very heavily in the, before the election. He, he was uh, traveling through Austria and he, he showed himself in traditional clothes to emphasize I'm an Austrian president, I'm an Austrian politician. Is this a strategy for... Van der Bellen, yeah. For centrist politicians for, for this time? Well, if you look at research on how European political systems have changed since 1980, there's a nice paper by two political scientists, one of whom is in Vienna, Marcus Wagner. Um, and they show that Europe generally has moved to the right since 1980, largely as mainstream parties have tried to respond to populist outsiders. And I think that's really interesting because we obsess over this idea that populists need to win power, right? They need to win office. They need to win elections. But actually, if you, if you take a step back and think about the indirect effect that populists have, then you can see how they can often change politics even when they, when they don't win office. Uh, so an, an, an example would be, you know, the Austrian president taking a very, you know, patriotic, symbolic stance on those kinds of issues, largely because he knows that national identity has been put onto the agenda or has, has been 
underlined by the rise of a populist challenger. But I mean, another example would be the Dutch Parliament approving of a partial ban on the burqa, largely as a response to Gert Wilders, or Nicolas Sarkozy talking about the loss of French national identity, or Theresa May talking about the need to prioritise immigration reform and attacking liberal elites and who she calls the citizens of nowhere. Those are all responses to the rise of UKIP, Marine Le Pen, uh, Gert Wilders, uh, the Freedom Party, and, and that is, I think, a kind of the beginning of what we are going to see more generally, which will be these parties dragging the party systems to the right, even if they're not necessarily winning power. So the, the populists are winning the debate without winning the election. Thank you for taking the time, Matthew. Well, thank you very much. So, das war's für heute. Schön, dass du bis am Ende dabei warst. Wenn dir die Folge gefallen hat, dann freue ich mich, wenn du sie mit deinen Freunden teilst, also auf Facebook, auf Twitter oder wo auch immer. Ich freue mich auch darüber, wenn du den Podcast abonnierst oder mir einen Review auf iTunes schreibst. Das hilft mir, den Podcast bekannter zu machen. Immer dankbar bin ich auch über Tipps, was ich besser oder anders machen könnte oder über Feedback dazu, wen ich in der Zukunft zu einem Gespräch einladen soll. Ihr könnt mir einfach über Facebook oder Twitter schreiben, da müsst ihr nur meinen Namen eingeben oder ihr schickt mir ein E-Mail an andreas.sator.at. Bis zum nächsten Mal.